And what we really need to do is to stop and go, no, I need to shut up. I need to listen to somebody else tell me about the world because my experience is not everyone's experience. And the only way that I'm going to figure out how the world looks entirely and wholly and fully is if I sit back and really understand somebody else's experience. Welcome to the Smart Money Mama Show, where moms get real about money to help you find your financial confidence and live your best life. Now let's talk money, mamas. Hey there, I'm your host, Chelsea Brennan. And mamas, today on the show, we're talking to Megan Siegman, a PhD in public history and a genealogist at the New England Historical Genealogical Society. And we're talking about the history of racial bias in the U.S. and her experience having to face the realities of slavery and colonialism every day in her work. Mamas, it feels weird. And in many ways, it is weird to have our first conversation about race on this podcast be a white woman talking to another white woman. I want to address that first and foremost, right up front. Neither Megan or I have had to experience racism. We come at this conversation from a place of immense privilege, and we will absolutely talk to black women and black mothers about the racial situations in this country over the coming weeks. But as we prepared to shift our podcast content to address the Black Lives Matter movement and protests happening across the country, I did not, under any circumstances, want to feel like I was asking Black leaders or Black creators to take time and emotional energy to come speak to us quickly or on my schedule when they already had enough work to do, when I had no right to make any demands on their time. I wanted to make those requests thoughtfully and express that the invite to come share with us was 100% on their schedule. Yet I also wanted to make sure that we started talking which brought me to invite Megan on the show. I think truly that Megan has a powerful perspective, particularly for white women who are just starting their anti-racism work, on what it looks like to really address our history of racism in the United States. Because Megan, in many ways, specializes in African-American genealogy. She is co-author to a weekly column on African-American genealogy with Dr. Henry Louis Gates Jr., which has traced families all over the country from recent personal tragedies and back in time to the Jim Crow South, Reconstruction, and before the end of slavery. She has authored a Guides for African-American Genealogical Research, published through the New England Historical Genealogical Society, and frequently lectures and gives webinars on locating ancestors of African descent before and after emancipation. And most recently, in partnership with the Georgetown Memory Project, Megan conducted oral histories with descendants of over 272 slaves sold by Georgetown University in 1838 as part of a larger project to create a database of information, records, family trees, and interviews of the GU-272 and their descendants. Megan is not black. She cannot express to us what it's like to experience racism or tell us the perfect thing to do but she can share her experience and knowledge about the importance of history. She can share her perspective of being absorbed in a history so many of us are disconnected from and know little about. 
She can share how she has learned to acknowledge her own privilege and listen to others. So today, two white women are going to talk about race and will likely stumble and get some things wrong. Tell us if we do. We both want to continue to listen and learn. But in having this conversation, I learned a lot from Megan, and I hope you will too. This interview is also a little longer than it would normally be. We had a lot we wanted to cover and talk about and that we didn't want to gloss over. So I hope you like a little bit of an extended format today. As always, stick around until the end of the show to hear my top three takeaways from this conversation with Megan. Or you can head over to the show notes at smartmoneymamas.com forward slash Megan, and that's M-E-A-G-H-A-N. Are you ready, mamas? Let's get started. Hey, Megan, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. It feels like it has been so long since I've seen you. How are the kids? How's how are you guys actually going through this last couple weeks where things are we're having to look at some hard truths? Yeah, you know, I mean it's it's been a crazy couple of months even just being home with the whole COVID situation and working from home with two little ones. I have a four-year-old and a seven-month-old, so that's been a challenge. But you know, also in kind of watching my four-year-old see these things unfold on TV and some of the news clips that he's seen and then the questions that he's asking about why the police are acting the way they are and why, you know, people are in the streets holding up signs. And, you know, some of it he doesn't fully process in his little brain, but we're starting to try to have some of those conversations about race and people of different you know, they have different skin colors than him. And he does go to a a school that all of his teachers are people of color. Okay, that's great. I don't know if he's really processed. I mean, he has people for his entire life that are people of color that have taken care of him in, you know, very intimate manner. So it's, but at the same time, you know, he kind of stopped when I asked him questions about it. And he said, oh, you know, well, my friend Cole is brown, but, you know, we both love Superman and Spider-Man and <laughs> he likes to be, you know, this Spider-Man and I like to be that Spider-Man. And, you know, so it it's processing a little bit in his little brain. But I think the hardest thing for me lately has been realizing that I actually need to sit down and address some of that with him and that mm-hmm. this is the age to do it. And it shouldn't be conversations that are put off until later that he's already starting to see the world and, you know, the systems at play, you know, for himself and kind of drawing his own conclusions about things. So I think that's been the hardest thing for me with all of this is, is, you know, I I kind of have dealt with, or at least been in this world of addressing racism and slavery and colonialism, you know, almost every day in my work, but it's not something that I've had to deal with with him. So that's new for me. (laughs) Well, let's talk about a little bit about what your work is, right? Because this is an interesting conversation for us to be having as two white women, but you have been doing this work for a long time. So explain to me what your career is. So currently I am a genealogist at the New England Historic Genealogical Society. And I've been there now, oh God, it's been almost eight years, I think. And primarily what I do is I write family histories of books primarily, but I also have a lot of other projects that I work on within the society, most of which um, have to do with dealing with African-American genealogy. So a lot of that is doing genealogy back into 
slavery and even prior to slavery and trying to find ancestors that way. I've done a lot of work with Henry Louis Gates Jr. We used to write a weekly column together in The Root com that would address genealogical questions that people would have. So they would write them in and then I'd spend time trying to find a little bit of information. But also we use that as a teaching tool to try to uh, educate people as to how they would go about finding resources themselves to be able to do the genealogical work themselves. And then most recently, the project that I'm most proud of, I think, of in my whole career so far is I was involved with the GU GU-272 Memory Project, which was in combination with the Georgetown Memory Project, which we did oral histories with the descendants of, it was actually over 272 slaves um, that were sold by Georgetown University in 1838. And they were sold to plantations in Louisiana. We went down, we traveled um, to Louisiana and talked to descendants, known descendants. The the story from Georgetown to start off with, when this, you might have seen it in the news back in 2015 or so, the students started protesting that they had Mm -hmm. named a building after one of the priests who was the primary coordinator of this sale. He, you know, to save the school from bankruptcy is the story that they had to sell all these slaves. And... The story from Georgetown initially was that there were no descendants because all of the slaves perished on the way to Louisiana, which doesn't make much sense. And Richard Cellini, who's the the head of the Georgetown Memory Project, kind of he was a he's a alum of Georgetown University and didn't sit well with him that that was the answer from the university. So he started poking, found a woman. Patricia Beyond Johnson, who is a descendant who had found her own, she had hired a genealogist and found her own way to this. And long story short, in this project, they ended up finding thousands of descendants of these slaves that were sold by Georgetown University. So we went down and ended up doing oral histories with a number of them. And we now have a beautiful website that's uh, gu272.americanancestors.org that um, has all of a bunch of the oral histories up in little clips that you can listen to. It also has all of the genealogies of all the families. So it's still kind of a work in progress because we're eventually, you know, we're trying to get more descendants involved. But it's been a project that's dear to my heart and I think is very important work because we're allowing the community really to, you know, speak for themselves and and their voices are what are present on the website. So And so how do these oral histories work? I'm just I'm fascinated, right? Is it the their the descendants' stories or is it their stories from their parents and grandparents that have been passed down? How do those interviews work? It's all of it. So what we're what we were interested in in doing the oral histories was getting their entire life story. So when we sit down with somebody, we start at the very beginning. Where were you born? Who are your parents? How many siblings do you have? Where did, were you raised? What high school did you go to? When did you graduate? All of these things. And usually, you know, and then there are other questions. We were asking them about their faith and the involvement of the church in their life or not in their life. You know, the fact that Georgetown is a Jesuit college, a lot of the descendants are actually Catholics because they were all baptized in the Catholic church before they were sold. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for some of them, it was discussing kind of that challenge and discovering that it was the priest that had sold 
them to a life that was deemed to be harder at that time to be sold to plantations in Louisiana. You know, that they had done this to them and the struggle of that with their own faith. And so there was conversations about that, you know, who they married, what stories their parents had told them, who their children are, you know, all of the, all of these things. And, and usually when you get on one topic or ask one question, you get down these little paths that go a variety of different ways. And we spoke to some of the folks that I interviewed. There was one woman whose father was the first black licensed jeweler in New Orleans. And then his mother became the first woman who was a jeweler in New Orleans because the father had to go and he ended up serving in World War II and she took over the business while he was gone. And so, you know, there's all these little stories that kind of people that marched with Martin Luther King and the first black person in the Air Force of a certain rank. So it was like, you know, so we had kind of descendants that have kind of walked all these paths of history. And we we were trying to also, when we were picking out clips to put up on the website, to pull out certain moments in time that people might recognize as far as like, you know, marching for civil rights. So we have kind of like categories of that. And, and then there are others, you know, that we would have long conversations about their experience with segregation in schools in the South and, you know, any kind of stories that they had about going to school when the schools were first desegregated. And, you know, so really trying to bring to life some of these moments in history that we just kind of write off as being these grandiose kind of things, but they they really, you know, they hit individuals in a very personal way. And I think that that makes history come to life a little bit more. So, you know, we weren't really just interested in hearing what they knew about their ancestors, because in most cases, these people didn't know much of anything. And that typically, in my experience, when I've spoken to folks that um, are descendants of slaves, they're usually tends to be a point in which there's no more information that's shared from family. And that has a lot to do with how difficult life was and how painful it was to share that information. So, you know, people that I talk to usually can tell me about their parents and their grandparents, but then they don't really get much beyond that. And, you know, really when you sit down and you look at the generation of that, their grandparents, some of them were very close to slave times. So it's, you know, it's not that I I try to tell people all the time when I'm, you know, just discussing race relations with people who are not of color and don't quite understand and, you know, kind of look at it as slavery was, is so far removed from us that when you really break it down into the generation you know, think of how long a person lives and how you knew your grandparent and when your grandparent was born and that they knew a grandparent that was enslaved. Like that's not that far actually removed from you that you could talk to a person that knew a person that was enslaved, you know, that's, so that's where the the breakdown usually happens in the family story because the grandparent didn't get any information from their parents or their grandparents because it was just too painful to share. And I think that that is such a powerful thing of we do, we are so removed from it. And our education system fails to talk about 
how big of a deal slavery was and in, in how we built this country and the lasting implications. Absolutely. Right. That like <laughs> slavery didn't end and then everything was better as we're seeing right now, there were these, it was all these different steps that came after it that continued to, to build that bias. So I'm curious what, what got, when did you start doing this work? Actually, let me start there. So really my academic career, I was focused on American Indian history. So I was working with tribes out in the Southwest and also in the Northeast, primarily the Akwesasne Mohawk in New York and Canada. And I developed relationships with them. And so that was kind of my focus. And I had done some work as an academic in that capacity where I was kind of looking at the relationship between American Indians and African Americans and Mm -hmm. participated in a couple of conferences that were trying to get at that relationship. And, you know, and it's one that is filled with its own turmoil. And it's one that I think a lot of folks are trying to repair or at least make a connection between the two. And that, you know, one of the conferences that I, or the most recent conference I remember participating in that was probably about 10 years ago. So, you know, and that is always kind of eye-opening work, um, sitting down and talking to folks. That was, it was also a public history conference. So in public history, just for those that don't know, because I'm a public historian, we are interested in how the public interacts with history as opposed to just teaching history in a classroom setting. So my interest was always, you know, how do you get the average everyday person to kind of think about history in a regular everyday kind of capacity, whether that be putting signs up on the street street, you know, that tell you what was there at one time, or if that's in a museum, or if that's, you know, in a podcast, or how, how, how do you do that? Those are always kind of the things that I was interested in. So these conferences that were talking about those connections between American Indians and African Americans was kind of my first real work that I was doing in the Black community. And then once I came to NHGS, so where I am now, the New England Historic Genealogical Society, I, I, I kind of, I don't know how it really happened. I, <laughs> I had, it, it was known that I'd had this history in the past and I expressed interest in continuing to learn. And I think that's kind of how it came to be that I got involved with Henry Louis Gates Jr. and writing the article and actually writing the article with him is how I learned kind of like on the ground running, if you will, answering those questions weekly. And from what there, kind of kind of, were you answering? I'm sorry. What kind of questions were you answering with him? So we'd get questions where people would say, you know, I hit a brick wall in the, you know, the typical question is that they hit 1870. So 1870 is the first United States federal census that is after the abolishment of slavery. So this is the first United States federal census that had former slaves listed for the first time by name. Prior to that, there were slave schedules in 1850 and 1860, but those did not list 
slaves by their name. They only listed the slave owner and gave a description of the slaves that they had. So it would be, you know, a 20-year-old female. And then they would use terms like black, mulatto, you know, those types of things to describe the slaves. So most people that are doing genealogical work, if they're tracing their family back through census records or through vital records, they hit that 1870, we call it the 1870 brick wall, because they're listed on the 1870 census, but they can't figure out where to go from from there. So a lot of the questions that we would answer is, how do you figure out where to find information to go further back? And is it possible to find an ancestor in slavery? But some of the other questions that we would get, um, we had questions about being adopted and how you might find information about a biological family. We had, I've, I've had questions about, there was one where somebody was asking about an ancestor who had been lynched and wanted more information about even just the historical context behind what happened in the riots that led to his murder. And, you know, so some of the questions are really heavy and some of the questions are a little bit lighter, if you will, if they're more recent. But for the most part, you know, we're talking about slavery. So it's, it's It's never, it's never not heavy. And there's always that, you know, that moment where, you find an ancestor listed on a slave schedule or on a a probate inventory. The probate inventories are usually what get me because you, you have that moment of being excited that you found the person listed by name and you can now definitively say, this is the person they were living on this plantation, you know, here's the family. But at the same time in that realization, you're looking at a probate inventory where they're listed as, you know, somebody's property and have a value next to their name of how much they're worth. So monetarily. So the it it's it's emotional and can be very complex. And I've had to, you know, I have cases where I have to completely step away from what I'm doing for a little while just because I mean the one case that sticks out in my head where I was sitting and going through, and this is another thing, is we don't talk about slavery in the North. Yes. But what the case that sticks out in my head is Pennsylvania had a gradual abolition of slavery act in which it, it was 1786. And what they then said is that anybody that was born into slavery within the next however many years was then going to have to continue to be a slave until they reached the age of 30. So as part of that, slave owners were having to go and register any child born into slavery. So on the one hand, it's a great genealogical resource because you have the mother's name and the child's name and the slave owner's name all listed on the same document. On the other hand, you're going on a microfilm page after page after page after page of babies being born into slavery who are going to be enslaved until they are adults. And then what that act did is not, while you might think it's a, it's a great thing that they then get their freedom when they're 30 years old. It was the, 30. So adulthood was 30. 
for enslaved individuals, yes. You, but because this number is picked on purpose because you get the most labor from somebody when they're young. So by the time they hit a certain age, then you can release them from your service, but then you are no longer responsible for feeding them, clothing them, housing them, anything. And then people are kicked out on their own to figure out how to feed themselves, where they're going to live, how they're going to make a living. And in some situations, depending on the work that people were doing, it's not like you have a whole lot of manual labor left in you at that point. I mean, we're talking about a time where people didn't live until they were 90 years old on a regular basis anyway. So, you know, it's it it's one of those things that you can look at it twofold and say, oh, well, Pennsylvania did it before everybody else. But what they really did was create a system where slaves could keep or slave owners could keep their slaves for a certain amount of time while they're useful to them and then get rid of them and not have to care for them in their old age. So, you know, it's care for them being a loose term. Yes. 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 And there's a million directions. There's so much I I want to ask about the history. Uh, But I want to ask, like, this is, this sounds heavy and emotional to even just hear about, Never mind looking at the microfilm, but neither of us are people who those are our ancestors, right? right? So when you're teaching other people how to do this work, or you're working with someone and you're bringing them this research, how do you, do you address the fact that you're coming from a place of major privilege to be showing them this history? Like, how do you talk about it? Always, 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 always. I have determined in the course of my career, and this started when I was working with Aquasasne specifically and my Navajo friends and, you know, anybody else that I've been, I've worked with in the past is you always need to, address, I always need to address where my privilege is coming from and what my intent is. And and part of that for me is to all, always make sure that I'm keeping myself in a place that I want to be. I don't want to ever be in a situation where I feel like what I am doing is exploiting anybody's culture or life or, you know, for my own gain and want to make sure that I'm using whatever skills I've learned along, you know, my own path, my own career path to better assist them in finding whatever information that they're looking for. So usually the the very first thing that I do is say, look, I'm probably the whitest person you'll ever meet. If you look at my DNA, my pie chart is 99.9% Northern European. Like there's very little even Eastern European in me. I've got, (laughs) you know, that's, that's just me. But I'm very passionate about the fact that everybody has a right to know their history. And I, I really want to make sure that since I have spent so many years studying how to figure out where to find that history and that information that if anybody asks me to help them find it, I'm going to help them. And, you know, I've been in environments where I've given plenty of lectures about doing 
genealogy to entirely black audiences where I am the only white person in the room and which is an experience that I think every white person should have on multiple occasions in their life because every single black person out there has had that experience in their life mm-hmm. and it is it it can be very uncomfortable and it usually is very uncomfortable when I first walk in the room. And it's usually very uncomfortable the first 10 minutes that I'm giving my presentation. And that's why I always just kind of put it out there in the beginning and ask if anybody has any questions for me. And, you know, usually, and I, I've been asked straight out why I even want to do this history, why I'm involved you know, in in any way. And, you know, sometimes I don't have a good answer for that just because it's, it's just, like I said, I'm just passionate about making sure that everybody has a right to know, has a way to know their own history. And I don't feel like it's my place to educate anybody about their history in the sense that they have lived experience that I will never have. You know, I have, the privilege in my position to study racism. I don't have to live it. And in that, I, I really tried to make all of my presentations and my lectures and even individual work with clients be a two-way street. I want it to be a conversation. I want people to stop me and ask me and question what I'm doing and you know, put me in those situations where I feel really com- uncomfortable and want to crawl into a corner. But, you know, in addressing it, I think that I've had really amazing experiences in working through some really tough history with folks and have come out with really great relationships from it. And I hope that it will always continue to be something that others find beneficial and it's not, you know, just me standing in front of a room in all my privilege talking at them about something they already know, because that's not ever what I want the conversation to be. And that makes a ton of sense. I do think you're in this unique position, though. We hear about a lot of white people right now waking up to this idea of white privilege, this idea that racism is not gone in our country, which is a little bit wild that we're having to have, that we didn't realize that, but we're realizing it. Mm -hmm. And I think to have your perspective of how do we, what do people need to know, right? And I think this is, you said it earlier, we think of, we think of slavery even as a Southern issue. Mm -hmm. There are lots of people that think of racism as being over when slavery was abolished. And so as a public historian, as an oral historian, for people who are listening, who are just starting their anti-racism work, what do you want them to know about the history Well, I mean, even if you're in the North, right, and even if your ancestors are in the North and they didn't own slaves, they wore cotton clothing, they, you know, used sugar in their tea. These are all things that slaves were producing. So you are not disconnected from slavery at all. I mean, in fact, in Massachusetts in particular, you know, Newburyport and all these Ports in Salem all had connections to the slave trade. There's, you know, a lot of houses here with rich white folks going way back that were getting all of their money from plantations they owned in the Caribbean and, you know, living in Massachusetts. So it's not 
like that it's completely, I mean, this is what we're talking about when we're talking about systems at play, right? That there are systems in our history and just in our society that are embedded. I mean, our, our country was founded on slavery. There's a reason why our founders didn't get rid of slavery when we became a country. And, you know, even people like John Adams, who was completely against slavery, didn't think it was a big enough issue to really push because it was more important to just become a country, right? Mm-hmm. And that that would be something that we would deal with later. That's like a, a secondary afterthought, you know? But it's, you, you know, we really, I, I find it really difficult when people excuse ancestors from their racism or the fact that they own slaves or any of that because they, it was a different time. And I think that if you really look at the history, there's always been people fighting against slavery. There's always been people who have thought it was wrong. There have always been people that have vocalized that. So you can't just sit back and say that it was just a different time. You know, we're living through that time now. So, you know, if you're a person that sits there and says, well, if I had lived during slavery, I would have been an abolitionist. Well, then you better be out on the street marching for Black Lives Matter right now, because that's what we're, that's exactly what we're talking about. You can't call your, you can't say that if I had been in a different time in history, I would have acted this way because we're living it right now. So how are you acting right now? Are you trying to educate yourself and become a better ally? Are you trying to work through your own bias that you're always going to have. I mean, that's the thing that I think, you know, white people have a really hard time struggling with is this idea of white guilt and that they have this bias that they can't get rid of. The the thing for me is that, you know, when you have those immediate reactions because you've been raised in a system that has told you to react in certain ways or to view certain situations in a certain capacity because of a person's ethnic background or skin color or whatever. You can't ignore those things. Those things are real. They exist. They're within you. You don't need to feel guilty about them. You need to work against them. So when you have those experiences and those thoughts and those feelings, Question yourself. Don't sit back and just say, you know, well, I'm just white. So, you know, I don't have to like, why are you experiencing that fight against your own bias? And that I think is the real race work that privileged white people are resistant to doing. And a lot of that does require sitting back and realizing that history isn't just history. It created the systems that we live under today. You know, when you have ancestors that made their money owning hundreds of thousands of slaves, the money you have today was, is, you know, the privilege that you have today to have been born into a class where you could get an education that was a good education, that you could go to a college, that you could get a job out of college, that you could do all of these things is because of the position that your ancestors were in by owning those slaves or by benefiting off of the slave trade in some way, even if they didn't directly own slaves. And the fact that then you have, you know, you have to consider the fact that when slaves are then freed, right? So we have emancipation. Mm -hmm. Well, what does that mean? You know, the whole reconstruction era 
is something that we just gloss over in school. Well, I think we've all heard the 40 acres and a mule right? But if, thing that I mean, never if, actually happened. If you think about, I mean, I was, I, once I became an adult and like studying these things, I realized that in high school, you know, you had the class in history that went up to the Civil War. And then you had the next class that happened like after the Civil War, but they just like skip over Reconstruction. Like they just barely talk about it, which is like the pivotal point in our history. That's when we were doing the groundwork of what kind of a country are we going to be? How are we going to treat people? And where are we going from here? And that's where we screwed up as a nation as far as you know, these compromises that were happening with, you know, the Northern politicians and Southern politicians. And, you know, the fact that a lot of former Confederates somehow then still made their way into positions of political power and that you have the rise of the KKK and that you have Jim Crow laws and that you have, you know, a system of imprisoning Black men as a way to kind of continue slavery, you know, all of these things are then creating a system that keeps Black folks in poverty. And if you can keep them in poverty, you can keep them enslaved, even though it's not coined, it's not called slavery anymore. You still have your freedom. But what does that, what does that mean? <laughs> you know, what systems are we then, There, we didn't put enough systems in place to actually get people to the point that even poor white people were at, at that point in time. So if you can't even the playing field Mm -hmm. in the course of history, then you're always going to keep people a step behind everybody else. So it creates the systems that make it harder to work against, you know, getting, getting the good schools, getting, you know, when I, when I sit down and when I was doing the oral histories with the the folks that were the descendants of the Georgetown, the 272, and one of the questions that we asked them, because it was a big question at Georgetown University as to whether or not they were going to do any kind of reparations to the individuals who were descendants of the people enslaved. And so we asked them, you know, that was one of the questions we asked in all the oral histories is, do you think that this is something that the Georgetown University should do? And overwhelmingly, I think every, pretty much everybody that I spoke to said that they, if they were going to see reparations, they wanted to see something that was going into schools in their communities in order to give people a better chance of having a better job to getting into college and having a better job so that they could get more money. So that they could get out of a system where they're working three jobs just to make rent. And, you know, they, so it's it really seems to be that education is viewed as the key to getting out of poverty or getting out of that cycle. And that's something that I think if you look at and I'm rambling now, but if you look at the 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 system in at large, right, that we we also keep white folks uneducated about these issues in order to keep the status quo of the system. So if you don't have the people who have the privilege to question the way things work, if they don't have the knowledge to know that they should be questioning the way things work, they don't question anything, which then the voices that, you know, are the, are the folks that are struggling to be heard 
about this is unfair. This is, you know, we are working at a disadvantage here because of all of these things that are put on us coming out of slavery and coming, you know, into a system that is racially biased and segregated and all of these things and violent and, you know, all of these things. The 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 white people that have the privilege to make change don't know it exists and don't know they should be making change. And I think that's, you know, I'm hopeful anyways, because, you know, this is not the first time that we've seen on the news police oh, yeah. killing a black person. This is not the first time. It's been happening since the end of slavery. Forever. You know, forever. And I'm hopeful because this feels different. The movement feels bigger. I think more people are aware. I mean, the protests now have lasted a lot longer than we've seen in the past. And I'm hopeful that we're actually going to start having those conversations and getting people who are white and are of privilege to actually sit down and say, how has my life been better because these systems exist? And just in acknowledging the fact that your life is better because these systems exist, make it so you realize, well, you know, I'm a good person. I don't want anybody else to be at a disadvantage, you know? I mean, I think most people are like, okay, people, right? And maybe it's just a process of just educating about how we got to this place and that it's not just something that you can brush off as, well, slavery happened so long ago, so get over it, like... You know, I mean, that's, you, you hear people say that and it's, oh, just, it's <laughs> yeah, it's a common take. Right. And so, and, and I think this privilege thing, the question is the white community at large, right? Needs, there's, I feel like there's two steps. There's like, you have to recognize that you have privilege and then the majority of us have to be willing to give some of it up, right? right. Like, because you cannot get equality until we say, okay, we're going to dismantle this system that has helped me. Mm-hmm. And that it feels like people are starting to get educated, but this is this is a big roadblock, and we have to do the internal work to say. And we actually had this question in our community of, I feel like I I, I need to do the work, but I'm also struggling with this small internal voice that's telling me I'm making the world harder for my kids, right? And then feeling immense guilt that that thought even popped into your right. head. But see, these, these are the biases that I'm talking about. They're the, oh, I know. The, yeah. You need to, to work with. But, you know, and I, I, I totally agree. And I think that it's something that when I, I here's where I'm going to go back to some of my academic work a little bit. So my uh, doctoral dissertation was focused on the Akwesasne Museum and looking at this concept of shared authority. So I was looking at shared authority in museum spaces and making the argument because museums make the argument all the time that they are the experts, right? We've gone to school for X amount of years. We know all the dates, all the people, all the history, all the important facts. We are the authority to tell the public who are uneducated and stupid about things they need to know in like layman's terms, that's the thought process of the people who run museums, right? Is that we need to figure out a way to tell people the things they need to know. And my argument in my dissertation was that what we really should be doing is viewing ourselves as negotiators between a variety of different viewpoints on the world. And that 
tribal museums are actually doing that work already. So the Akwesasne Museum, they have community curators. Um, they actually bring in kids. They have like children curators that come in, come up with the idea of an exhibit. They produce their own kind of work that would go up on the wall. They interview elders to get information. And then they have authority over what is produced down to even picking out a photo. Like, I like that photo and not that one. Or let's tell this story and not that one. Or let's use this graphic or whatever. And in the reason I'm saying all this is because the museum professionals are the white folks, right? Mm. Is that we sit there and we go, well, we know, right? We know, mm -hmm. we know, we know the way things work. We know the way things should go. We know how everything should be. We, we should tell you what you should do and how you should think and how you should be. And what we really need to do is to stop and go, no, I need to shut up. I need to listen to somebody else tell me about the world because my experience is not everyone's experience. And the only way that I'm going to figure out how the world looks entirely and wholly and fully is if I sit back and really understand somebody else's experience. And not that you'll ever know what it's like to have racism pressed upon you in very minuscule ways throughout every single day of your life. But if you hear somebody explain those things to you in detail, you know, the, the, the incident at the gas station where, you know, the nervous white lady calls the cops on you or something like that. Like, if you hear those things from somebody, you can at least start to develop an empathy for what those experiences are. And imagine yourself in that situation that you've done nothing other than just be black in a scenario that any white person would never have to even think about that this could be an issue for me. You know, the dad that takes his daughter on a walk with him every single day because he knows if he walks around his white neighborhood without a daughter, that that could be viewed as a, somebody who's a threat in the community, in his own neighborhood. Something that, you know, we as white people wouldn't ever think about. Wouldn't even cross your mind. Right. But the fact that he sits in, you know, uh, you know, it exists that they sit there and they go, I have to bring my kids mm -hmm. out with me. My kids are going to protect me from having the cops called on me and knowing that if the cops are called on me, that it could be my death. Like, that's the thing that, you know, it's not just about these little encounters. It's it's something that could be very violent and deadly in reality, you know, that these small little things that we as white folks don't ever have to think about 
So, you know, just take the time and think about it, you know, and then you, if you think about it, then you start developing an empathy towards it and you start realizing that people out in the streets screaming about this stuff, it actually means something. It's not just something that people are doing because, you know, they want to get out of the house. Like it's, it's, it's something that means something and it's, it's a reality for folks on their daily lives. And I think that we really, like, like I said, I just think, you know, I always try to view myself in any of the work that I do. I like that term negotiator that I'm just like processing the information that's thrown at me. So, you know, even in my genealogical work, when I'm working with people, you know, there tends to be this thought, even with genealogists that we can't trust oral history. We can't trust what people have to say about their history because it's usually wrong. And in my experience, I've found that there's always at least some shred of truth to family stories that have been passed along. So if you listen to the stories and you try to figure out what part of that is truthful in that you can then support in documentation, because as genealogists, we have to have everything, you know, cited with a source and all of those types of things. But there's value to it. And, you know, there's value in listening to people and to understanding how they experience the world and what they've been told and what they've learned and all of those things. So really just, you know, if white folks could just sit back and listen for a little while and learn. I think that this could be a moment of change just in the fact that if you're reflecting upon your position within that system and you're willing to say, to sit back and say, and give, and give away some of that authority over knowing everything, <laughs> you know, that I'm, I'm okay with having somebody else tell me about the world. And outside of what you can cite from oral history, right? I'm just sitting here thinking like as a human being and with empathy, hearing those stories has to let us see how we tie generations old history to how those systems were built today, right? Because how those stories were interpreted generations ago and passed down and passed down and passed down impacts outcome, impacts behavior, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, that... That comes to, and, and you know, it, when talking to folks who are descendants of slaves, though, it's it's a very tricky thing as far as what's been passed down. There are tidbits of a lot of a lot of people that I've worked with have, you know, maybe little tidbits about a grandma's recipe or a this, you know, th- but they don't really have the stories that give the full gravity of what the family Mm -hmm. history is in some instances. So some of the GU 272 descendants did have, they had stories in their family and that's actually when they were beginning to try to figure out who could be a descendant or not. Some of the, the, the things that they were looking for was, you know, if you were in this particular area of Louisiana, if you were Catholic, which was like a huge red flag for us that you were likely a descendant if you were Catholic. And there were also some folks that did have stories about their ancestors coming from the North and some that would have stories about this long journey they took on the river on, you know, kind of these flat boats with the mothers, with their babies and, you know, carrying them in alligator infested waters and, you know, all of those. So there were some, 
some of those oral history kind of stories that were passed down. But for the most part, there usually seems to be a, a gap in the knowledge that's, you know, and that's another disadvantage, right? Of just mm-hmm. not knowing the whole history of your family. I mean, you know, a lot of the white folks that come into where I work, they have these big, huge charts that go back to Charlemagne or whatever, you know, where they have this, the, the privilege of knowing for generations upon generations upon generations of who their people are and where they come from. And, you know, the, the people that I work with, we're excited, if you will, if we can get into slavery and find the one record of an ancestor listed with a slave owner. And then the GU-272 is a really extraordinary circumstance because once you're able to trace them back to Georgetown, Georgetown actually kept really good records because they all were baptized in the church. So in that instance, you can go back a number of generations, but that's not typical for most people. And, you know, a lot of times the paper trail just gets lost and you don't have people listed by names, even in bills of sale. So you could have a bill of sale of one slave to another, a slave, one slave owner to another slave owner, and it's an indivi- individual being sold, but they don't even list them by name. So you don't know if it's your if it's the ancestor you're looking for or not. And in a lot of cases, I'm sitting there looking at slave schedules, trying to figure out if it could be the person based on the age and the sex and the description of their color because they are described a certain way in the census in 1870. And, you know, you're kind of lucky if you get that much. So it's, it's also a disadvantage. I mean, that's, it, it's a case in point of another point of white privilege that it's very easy for us to have knowledge of generations upon generations of our families. In most cases, I mean, there are cases where that's not the case, but in most cases, the paper trail exists and you can find it somewhere. And it just is not the case for a lot of descendants of slaves to be able to find those records. Because if you are finding those records, you're finding them under the slave owner's name. And it's it's basically tracing slave owners at that point, as, as opposed to just, you know, the individual who was enslaved. So Megan, obviously, we need to shut up and listen. For people who want to educate um, themselves about, about the history, about their own bias, do you have any resources, books, documentaries that you recommend people look at or start with? I would say, okay, so if you're interested in looking at the history as far as a genealogical perspective goes, I would, we have a lot of resources at NHGS. I put together a study guide that's on our website that I could give you a link to if, if you'd like that. And some of that, the, the reason I'm pointing to that is because it's not just useful as a genealogical resource, but there's a lot of information there about points in history as far as what kind of records exist for people of color before slavery, during slavery, after slavery, you know, kind of all of those things. And there's a lot of books and different sources that I probably won't remember right off the top of my head here that are available on that. Some 
other resources that I would say the Netflix, I think it's Netflix now has that 13th amendment mm-hmm. documentary, which was really great about, you know, some of what we talked about of creating kind of a prison system around that kept people enslaved, which I think is really excellent as far as, you know, it can be eye opening to folks that don't know anything about that kind of history and easy to sit at your house and kind of watch instead of having to pick anything up and read. And one of the books that really stood out for me when I was in in grad school was Race and Manifest Destiny. And that's by Reginald Horseman. And that's, I think, a, a good resource just on understanding how America framed itself around racism, really. And, you know, how we kind of took our our whiteness as a rationale for pushing West and having this idea of manifest destiny, that it's our destiny to kind of take over everybody else that, you know, the other that lives here. So not just Blacks and African Americans, descendants of slaves, but anybody that's of color or is different and is not white, you know, so that I think is, is a really, I think it's still a book that has held its time as well. I think it's hard when you're exactly right. That so much of what we learn about pre civil war history and and especially reconstruction, which you're right. We just completely brush over. We never learned. We just had like no frame of reference for. And so like, I think even just going back and finding a history book that actually talks about those things just gives us great, like sharecropping being one of of the big things that jumped out to me that I've learned about. We talk about racial wealth gaps Mm -hmm. here and how much this poverty and debt cycle was started by the system that was created around sharecropping that allowed people to be arrested for these debts and that had enormous interest rates and that your the property you were sharecropping on the property owner set your the price of what you the seed that you had to buy the price that you got to sell your product at and the interest rate on the debt that you were carrying year to year it was impossible to dig your way out of that mm-hmm. system and we just don't know about it and i think that like there's so many great books being passed around right now and being shared about really opening up and understanding our bias. But as you think, if you think of anything that's really good about specifically about the history, I think that frames it a little bit better for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's why race and manifest destiny is something that I would recommend just because it is a, it's a history. So it's not something that's just focused on kind of white bias and, you know, some of these things that, are so forefront in what we're talking about today. But, you know, while you're at it, I would also say that anything that focuses on, you know, kind of the genocide of American Indians is is another way to kind of look at how America has framed its systems to mm-hmm. push aside and keep down people of color. So, you know, in in what I do, kind of looking at the two, it always goes hand in hand for me. And there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of conversation there too about relations between, you know, Native groups and Black Americans. And there's a history there too that can also kind of be fleshed out and talked about. So I think there's, 
there's a lot there that you can dig into as far as history goes to give you a better understanding of how we kind of got to where we are today. But, you know, it's never as easy as just saying, I've had to, I went to an inner city school when I was in high school and 52% of the population was minorities. And I've had to explain in the past, there are those that would say that since I went through a program with people of color and we all were exposed to the same teachers, to the same curriculum, to the same, you know, kind of systems within the school, that Mm -hmm. we all had an equal opportunity in that. And that, and I strongly disagree with that because my experience of going through that school was one where I had a mother waiting for me when I got home who could help me with my homework, who cooked me dinner, who put me to bed and made sure I was home. And I had friends who had mothers who had to work three jobs by no fault of their own, who could not be home when they came home from school, who were not there to help them with their homework and could not afford the childcare to help them do that. And even just something that seems as minor as that can be the difference between coming out of a program at an advantage or at a disadvantage. And I don't think it's as easy to say that just because I went to school with, you know, the same, we all went through the same thing. We didn't experience it in the same way because our home lives were very different. And a lot of that has to do with a system of poverty and the fact that people can't make a living wage working one job to be able to provide for their families and then still be there for them physically, emotionally, and support them through, you know, and that's of no fault of their own. You know, these are people that were hardworking people that were trying to make the best lives for themselves. But it's, it's part of that system that creates the white privilege that I, you know, come from generations of white people who were not rich, but had enough means to make sure Mm -hmm. that, you know, each generation could get a little bit better than the one before it. And that's the system that we're talking about. One that perpetuates a system of keeping people in poverty, as opposed to giving them the opportunities to be able to move in whichever direction they want to. Like you're talking about with sharecropping, you just can never get, you're you're working your butt off, but Mm -hmm. you can never get out of that system. And guys, this is, you know, race obviously plays a big part in this. But if you have, if you're interested in a little bit of what Megan's talking about with systematic poverty, I'd highly recommend checking out the book Evicted. I don't know if you've ever read that, Megan, which is about the rent system Mm -hmm. in the US and how that creates poverty you cannot get out of, right? That you make living unstable, that it is so expensive. And that's another, an interesting 
interesting is such a bad word because it was such a gut-wrenching book to read as someone who does not live that experience, but it's eye-opening. And I think that anytime we can see other people's perspectives uh, is a helpful thing. Yeah, absolutely. So Megan, I have two more questions for you mm-hmm. and then I'll, <laughs> then I'll let you go. We've talked about a lot today, but one question is any s- tools or practices that you've brought into your own life as you've done all this work over the years to check your own bias, to make sure that we're doing it on a regular basis? Well, I mean, the the minute that you have a, a gut reaction to something, you have to question yourself as to why you're having that, right? So, I mean, I think it's instead of just letting that feeling go is something that you're just allowed to have, stopping and questioning, why am I... F- having that reaction to something. Mm -hmm. Why do I feel that way in this moment? Why is that person making me uncomfortable? Why, you know, do I not want to be in this space with these people right now? Why is my immediate reaction to leave this conversation? Or I don't want to, you know, address this concept of race in, in this company. You know, why is it that I'm having that response? Mm -hmm. And just, pausing with yourself to to question yourself as to because you're going to have it i mean everybody has it it doesn't Mm -hmm. matter you know how how much work you do in this you're always going to have it there's always going to be an instance where you know maybe you feel bad about having that thought pop into your head and that's Mm -hmm. okay and i mean i think it's also about accepting the fact that you're going to do things wrong. And that's okay Mm -hmm. too. You know, we're not always going to say, I'm sure there's probably 10 things I said in this that somebody could look at me and say, that's not really, let's stop and talk about that for a minute. And I hope you do say to me, let's stop and talk about that for a minute, because, you know, that's how we learn. That's how you kind of grow and, and see how other people have had different experiences than you and maybe can teach you more about an experience than you could get yourself. But it's really, it's it's like that self-reflective practice, kind of being comfortable. I think part of the problem is too, is being comfortable enough in your own skin and your own thoughts to allow yourself to question yourself. You know, mm. to, I mean, that's, that's like personal work, right? To actually have to sit down and that has nothing to do with anybody else. That's just you kind of going, okay, well, why, why, why are you doing that in this instance? Because I certainly, I have moments all the time where I walk into a situation and I'm having a response to something like a gut response and, you know, working against a system that has taught me. I mean, you know, looking at that video of the woman calling the cops on the, you know, the the bird, bird watcher in the park, you know, it's, I mean, it's a terrible thing to watch. And But one of the conversations that I was having with a friend of mine about it was, you know, let's talk about the system that has taught women, white women specifically, that Mm -hmm. that's a response that you should have when seeing a black man in a situation where you're alone with a black man, that you immediately see that as a threat. Let's have a conversation about why that's your gut reaction. And if you hadn't, if she had in that moment stopped and asked herself, 
why am I having that gut reaction? Let me step back and see what in this situation, is there anything in this situation that has actually caused me to feel that I should be threatened in any way? And, you know, the answer is no. (laughs) Um, And then go, okay, so why am I having that reaction? And being allowed to, allowing yourself to question that response, I think, is the way that you become anti-racist is saying, you know, when I have this racist thought that's been embedded in in me because of the way that my position in society, my position yeah. in society is that I am a white woman. And I've been taught over the course of my existence that not only are men a threat because I am a woman, but that black men are a threat because their blackness is a threat. That's something that's been put program it's programmed into you so you have to work against that and and question yourself as to is is this really a threatening situation or am i just allowing myself to be overcome by something that's a system that i've been taught and i think that self-reflection moment is so important right because when we we hold so tightly to this notion of like i'm not racist even when we, I think the that move from not being racist to being anti-racist, not being overtly racist to being anti-racist, you have that thought and you're like, well, I shouldn't think that. And I'm just going to push it away. No, don't. <laughs> and do that. not. Right. Exactly. We have to do the reflective work. Otherwise, we're going to keep have we're going to keep having that. And we're going to keep. Yeah. Just um, and, and all that does, too, is if you just push this thought aside and say, oh, I shouldn't have that thought. I'm just going to push it over here. That all that does is just reinforce to you too that you've been you've done something bad and you've done something wrong instead of actually making yourself question why have I been programmed to think that? Mm-hmm. Like that's that's the part where it just it and it punishes you in a way that makes you less re- less likely to want to have race conversations because it makes you, if you constantly are telling yourself that, it makes you feel like race is a concept or a conversation that you in your white privilege do not have any capacity to have. And that you should just push that away because it doesn't have to do with your existence. It doesn't have to do with your life. And you can just punish yourself and say, don't have that thought, push it away. Don't have that thought, push it away. Instead of you actually coming to terms with the fact that even though you're white, you have to have race conversations and you have to have race conversations in what you do in everyday life and have those thoughts to yourself. And maybe, maybe even if you're not having a gut reaction or a bias reaction, just but next time you're at the gas station, think to yourself, what would the situation be like if I were black? What would the situation be like if I were a person of color or a different ethnicity or would would my experience in just doing this simple everyday task be something different because of the color of my skin or the way that I look? Absolutely. All right, Megan. And then my last question for you comes back to your four-year-old and this realization you said you've had, right, of having to have these conversations earlier than even you were prepared to have. So I have two stages of questions. One, what are you starting to do with your four-year-old? And then the second being, 
how do we better educate kids about all areas of history and have a more holistic view, um, even as schools kind of very, very slowly start to develop on their own? So this is a tricky one, right? So we we watch a lot of Disney movies in my house. <laughs> I'm going to just start with that. Shoes and all. <laughs> but in... In saying that, the only one that I I really struggle with and I cannot have him watch is Peter Pan because I have no real way of explaining the depictions of Native people in that. So that's the only one that I I don't, I, I can't touch. But in... Most cases, I feel like things that are are made for kids are typically things that academics like to throw stones at and say, this is exploiting of this culture, or this is, you know, racist in this sense, or all of that. And I think it's a really hard thing, because how do you get kids exposed to other cultures and other religions and other things without making it kid-like, right? So... I think in 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 saying that there's going to be caricatures that people are that may be problematic but I feel like all of those can also be teaching moments that are are places where you can reach kids because if they start to love a character like Tiana from Princess and the Frog or Moana is another big one that received a lot of criticism, you know, the Halloween costumes and things like that. At the same time, I think if you, you know, have those kind of as a gateway, if they can relate to a character or see themselves in a character, you can then have those conversations about differences and similarities and, you know, kind of note that a character can be very different from you, but also very similar to you at the same time. And we have conversations, Patrick and I have conversations about um, that with, you know, some of his friends at school and what kind of thing, you know, even just basic things like what you're, they have a different favorite color than you, or they don't like the same foods as you, or, you know, and really just understanding that concept that everybody can have their own the own their own way of seeing the world their own different yeah everybody's different in a little ways and everybody's similar in other capacities and i'm no expert at how to get kids to talk and think about race or any of those things but you know for myself i've kind of been using what's going on in the news because i can't hide that from him i mean we do have the news on in the house and he does see that and i don't think it's something that i want to hide from him because I'd rather it be something where he's asking me if the police are stormtroopers because maybe they are. And kind of like reaching that point where we're then, when I looked at him and I said, you know, these people are marching because they're treated, that people are treated badly because of the color of their skin. Mm-hmm. And he kind of like just looked at me and stared at me and he was like, what are you talking about? And I said, you know, people have different skin colors and he, and he stopped and he paused and his, in his innocent little self said to me, yeah, like, you know, you're pink and Snow White is white and she's okay. And I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> <Stop talking> about- <laughs> oh boy, Patrick. I know. But you know, and then, but then, Later on in the day, out of nowhere, he came up to me and he said, 
well, you know, Tia is brown, his teacher at school. And I said, yeah, yeah, she is. And he's like, yep, that's, and that was it, that he just wanted to acknowledge the fact that he realized in his head that he had never, maybe he had never thought about it before, but that he had realized in his head that his teacher at school has a different color skin than him. And for him, it still was something that was not, like, I'm just going to acknowledge that it is a a fact that exists, and then I'm just going to move on with my day. And I think that that's where he's at with it right now. And, you know, the conversations may change in the future, but I think we need to acknowledge the fact that kids do see color. You know, this whole concept of saying that we don't see color is nonsense that we should just all get rid of because the only way that we're going to actually address anything and work on anything is if you recognize the fact that everybody does see color. It's it. Well, I think we're all seeing those, those facts being passed around. I don't know if you've seen the infographics about race, race at different ages and how like age four or five, you start to see racist tendencies develop. Mm -hmm. And, but even the nine month olds, right. Start to prefer people that look like their caregivers. Right. And so starting those conversations early, I think at least at a basic level is just, is just important. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And I, I would think that we can't, we can't, with our kid, we tend to baby our kids or try to keep our kids from the real world as long as possible. And I, I understand that instinct to try to do that. But the reality is I see it as my job. I'm raising a white male and they have the most privilege of anybody in this country. And I want to make sure that the white male that I'm sending out into the world is one that's going to be empathetic, sympathetic, kind, and working against racist systems in whatever he decides to do in his life. Because you don't need to be, you know, he doesn't need to be somebody that's actively out there, you know, but you can do these things in your everyday life, no matter what path you choose to do. And, you know, really actively working towards making sure everybody is treated fairly. And, if you don't have these conversations with them throughout their life, you know, then they're just going to form the ideas that the system is going to press on them. I mean, you know, when he comes home already telling me that, well, that's a girl because of X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, well, how do you know that, that, (laughs) you know, I mean, it's, it's systems at play that are not coming from my household. So I know that it's, you know, the world, the pressures from the world and, and outside forces are things that, have to be addressed and talked about in a way, you know, we have a lot of books by native authors that uh, we read with Patrick. And that's, you know, something that's important to me to have. And so he gets a lot of story, you know, there's a lot of storytelling and myths and things like that, that are coming from native traditions, mostly Northeastern. And, you know, but even in that, having those conversations about that this is a different tradition than our own, and that some people view the world this way, and some people view it that way, and they're capable, even at four years old, of having that conversation. Mm-hmm. And I think you know your comment about Patrick coming home and saying, this is a girl because, I think that was the first, Hank, so our four-year-old started school for the first time this year. And he's been home with us uh, always. And he came home like second month saying that this little boy in his class was a girl. And we were like, no, he's 
definitely a boy. Why, why are you saying he's a girl? Well, well, he has long hair. And we had this whole conversation of like, mommy has short hair. <laughs> Uncle Jake has long hair. <laughs> and we just, it was like, it was completely, yep. he just was like, no, girls have long hair. Yep. And it, we, we, it, and we had to work on that for a while of like, people can choose different styles and they can look different ways. And that does not mean that you get to denote their gender right. when other people say, no, that's, <laughs> that's not right. And I think that that just having those conversations, I think I agree with you is important. And, and hearing from authors specifically of different cultures, different races, mm-hmm. and not necessarily just books written by white authors with characters mm-hmm. of color, right? That's not. That's not the same thing. Cool. Megan, any uh, last words to the African-American mamas maybe about if they want to study their own genealogy, any tips or for our white mamas who are listening on who are just starting this work, what they should lean into right now? Well, I mean, as far as genealogy goes, you know, genealogy is always something that just kind of jumping in and talking to your family is the, the, the very first step in any of that. I'm always, you know, happy to to help bounce ideas off of if we have any mamas out there that are looking to start their genealogical journey, I'm I'm happy to help. But, you know, the the study guide that we put together that's on our that I'll share with the link with you is a good place to start if you're wanting to do genealogy if if you think you're a descendant of a slave, that's kind of a good resource to start with. As far as kind of people who are mamas who are white that are starting this journey really the the best thing uh, the best thing that I've learned over the course of my years of working with people of color is to really just stop and listen and reflect those are that's really all it's it seems so simple <laughs> but you know if you i i have colleagues who have walked into rooms it's that same thing that i was saying with the museum professionals of like walking in having this attitude with the chip on your shoulder of i know more than you and that never goes and it doesn't get you far at all and I always, you know, I, it's, it's something that I always try when I'm in, no no matter what job I've been in, in the past in working within systems that are already in place. And even if people are coming from a good place and they're trying to be inclusive and they're trying to do the work to understand how to connect with Mm community you know with people of color there still always seems to be this resistance to actually doing things the way those people want you to do it and that's the hardest thing to come up against whether it's understanding the fact that people aren't always going to work on the same time frame that you want them to So you coming up to them and saying, I need X, Y, and Z from you by this date. Mm. That's privilege. (laughs) (laughs) You know, especially when it's something that's taking their culture, their identity, and 
using it for whatever purpose you're using it for and then giving them a timeline and a guide for that of I need it on whatever, you know, schedule I need to have it on instead of coming to people and saying, I want to understand this. How can you help me understand it? And when are you available to do that? Instead of even just a slight shift in how you approach that thought process of connecting with people can make a huge difference in really making meaningful connections and close relationships that you can develop in the future. Coming at somebody saying, we need something from you immediately, you might get it, (laughs) but you might never get anything from them again. And And you might not get what you actually need. Right. right? And you might, in doing that and and in cutting that relationship in, in not allow it and now in not allowing a space for that relationship to grow and develop over time, you're missing out on so much that you could learn and really make it a two way street, you know, in every work. I mean, I'm a person that, when I was working on my dissertation, I wrote pretty much the whole thing before, and but I had to get approval from the tribe to do the, to actually do my research and to do oral histories with the community, because that's what I, that was the piece I was missing to my research. So I had done four years of work back and forth with some community members, but they weren't the tribal council that could give me the approval. But that was four years of work of back and forth and back and forth. And then I had to go and present my work in front of the council and have them tell me if they were going to let me do my research or not. And I can tell you right now, because I know that the sad thing to me is that the the people that I worked with, their library there, when I was working on my stuff back and forth, she was surprised that I sent my papers as I was writing them. And I said, of course, I would want you to look at my stuff and give me feedback before I'm, that's why wouldn't I want you to do that? And she said, you're the first person that has done research with our community that has given back their research at the end of it, which was shocking to me. Wow. So it's because I had done that legwork and I had built relationships with people in the community and I had years of going back and forth and doing this work that I got approval from the tribal council, but it all could have ended in that meeting. I could have walked in and said, here I am, some white lady off the reservation coming in wanting to do research on your tribe. And they could have said, absolutely not. We don't, we don't want you. We don't need you. And they would have been completely right. And in, I, I would have walked away. I would have been upset, and of obviously, but it would have been something that I would have understood. And I knew very well walking into that meeting that I could have ended up in that situation. And it's that same, but it's it's putting yourself in that 
position of knowing that you you are not the authority, you are not the the end all, know all. Letting go of that privilege of knowing that you should. If I had walked in with this attitude of I just have the right to do to do this work, well, why do you have the right to do this work? You don't. You're not from here. You don't know anything about us. <laughs> you don't have yeah. any right to do anything. <laughs> but there are a lot of. I mean, there are a lot of people that I've worked with over the years that have that attitude that they have the right to. They they have the academic credentials, so therefore they have the right to to do the research, to say whatever they want, to do whatever they want, and they're not willing to put in the work to actually develop the relationships. And you know what those their work suffers because of that, because they're not getting the whole story. They're not getting the full, you know, that full relationship. So I think, you know, as I've said before, and this has been very long winded, but just sit back as as I'm saying, as I'm very long winded, I'm sitting back and telling you to shut up and to listen to other people. (laughs) (laughs) And I recognize the irony in that. (laughs) No, I think, I think that's really good advice and that I think we live in a really amazing age where we get to listen to so many different perspectives if we're just open to it. Mm -hmm. And even over the past two weeks on Instagram, on YouTube, I feel like I've seen so many amazing talks and perspectives and stories that have been out there and my awareness has just been brought to them. And that we get this opportunity to hear them, even if we live in areas of the country that are predominantly white, even if we haven't had these experiences ourselves or seen them happen, I think we can definitely all take the time to spend more time listening. Absolutely. But Megan, this has been so great. Thank you for sharing your experience and your ideas. Where can people find out a little bit more about NEHGS and any of the other work you're doing? So if you go to AmericanAncestors.org, that's our main page. And we have lots of resources on there as far as there's a tab called Learn. And that's where you'll find the study guides. And that's where my study guide on African-American genealogy is located there. But they have tons of other resources for just getting started in genealogy to begin with. And also all different kinds of research areas. You can find things about how to do Irish research or Jewish research or Polish research or whatever. We have all kinds of study guides for pretty much everything. Even though New England is in our name, we are not just New England. We do things all over the world. So you can find resources for just about anything. And we do have experts throughout the building that cover that. We have experts that will touch every part of the world. So if I can't help you with something. Somebody can. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Megan. I hope we talk to you again soon. Thank you so much. Mamas, what did you think listening to Megan today? Did you want to go back and learn more about our history as a country? Are you considering more carefully how what we're living today was impacted by what happened in the past? I know I'm going to be going to the Georgetown 272 website. We'll link to it in the show notes. And listening to some of those oral histories Megan collected. I checked some of the stories out when the site first went live, and they're incredibly moving, but I want to go back and listen some more now. Talking to Megan, I'm always struck by her describing what it's like to look at microfilms listing enslaved peoples as property in a probate document, or records of babies being born into slavery. How absolutely vile and horrible that is, and how it really wasn't that long ago. 
After the show, Megan and I were talking and she wanted to make another suggestion for anyone who wants to learn more about the history of slavery and racism in the United States. She asks you to look up the slave laws in your state. Megan says, slave laws can give you a good idea of the conditions during slavery, and the laws outlawing slavery can give you a sense of what conditions following slavery were and what people did or did not have access to after slavery ended. It not only can give you a better understanding of the history, but it feels more personal, closer, when you're reading about practices that were in place where you live right now. History is now. What happens in the past creates what we see in the present, and if we don't take the time to really understand it from multiple perspectives, we won't see where we went wrong and what most needs to change. The racial injustice we see in the world, the devaluing of black lives, isn't just driven by what we're doing today, but by what we've done for generations. And it's about damn time we start to recognize and correct that injustice. As always, I've rounded up my top three takeaways from this episode for you to take into your own anti-racism work. First, stop, listen, and reflect. Acknowledging your privilege means acknowledging that you don't know everything, that you can't possibly know what it's like to live someone else's life. I'd actually say that's part of being an empathetic human, but it's more crucial for those of us in a place of privilege because we are the ones so often talking over others. No matter who you are, as Megan said today, the only way to start to expand your perspective is to shut your mouth and truly listen. Approach conversations with others with a compassionate heart. When you hear something that feels foreign to you, or even that your mind wants to reject, sit with it for a while. Reflect. Develop empathy and understanding. Honor other people's truth. You and your communities will be better for it. Second, practice checking your internal bias and really questioning it. We all have internal biases. We just do. As Megan said today, they are programmed into us by systems that were built with bias, even if we weren't raised by overtly racist parents or teachers. No matter who you are, you will have thoughts and reactions to situations that you know are wrong. Don't deny that you do. Don't push them away. Start learning how to check them. Ask yourself, why do I feel this way? Am I really unsafe? Is what I'm thinking actually true? Or am I just having a reaction? How should I proceed in alignment with reality and my values in this moment? This requires taking a momentary pause and addressing the thoughts in the moment takes practice. We will have times where we screw up when our biases will play out before we can catch them. In those moments, reflection is even more important, taking the time to learn what we could have done differently and course correct. Acknowledging our bias and doing the work to overcome it is the only way things can change. And finally, third, this is your opportunity to show how you show up against injustice. Megan is 1000% right when she said, if you are a person who says they would have been an abolitionist, that you would have participated in the Underground Railroad to save slaves, would have marched during the civil rights movement, then you better be speaking up and doing something now, because now is the time to prove it. Things do feel different. The movement feels bigger, louder, like we're making more impact. We are living in a moment in history, and if we want to create real change, a better, more equal country for all and for future generations, we all have to stand together for justice. When you tell the story of this time to your grandkids, what will you say? What will you have done? 
It's time to get out there and do the hard work. You've got this. Mamas, I want to thank Megan again for joining me on the show and sharing all her experience and insight. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I so appreciate you spending some time with us today talking about such a crucially important issue. And please, if you're an African-American mama who wants to work on your own genealogy, please reach out to Megan through the New England Historical Genealogical Society. We'll have links in the show notes. She'd be happy to help. And as a reminder, if you're looking for a summary of our key takeaways or links to the books and resources Megan mentioned, head to the show notes at smartmoneymamas.com forward slash Megan. And that's M-E-A-G-H-A-N. Keep talking money, mamas. I'll see you next time.